Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. During the Civil War sesquicentennial, the magazine Our State, celebrating North Carolina, commemorated the war in a series of short pieces covering many different aspects of North Carolina's participation. To write these pieces, the magazine commissioned not one of the state's many professional historians who specialize in the war era, but to a creative writing professor with no particular background in this historical topic. Why? And how did it turn out? We'll find out when we talk with the author of those pieces and of their publication in a book called The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, when we talk with Philip Gerard tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller, an epic you need to add to your Civil War library. Vicksburg recounts the crucial campaign that changed everything. Vicksburg analyzes General Grant's successes and failures at Vicksburg while he battled controversies and personal demons. Not just a military campaign fought across swamps, backwoods, and bluffs, Vicksburg also forced Grant into the role of liberator as he managed the slave revolts that toppled the South's economy while adding new soldiers and workers to the Union. Vicksburg is available now wherever you buy books. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university or the Brewster Building or the crew who are noisily repairing the stairway outside my office, uh, even as we speak, just speaking for myself, and I know my guest will likewise speak not for his university or anyone else, just for himself, as we always do here. Well, they are still repairing the stairwells of the Brewster building, and they will be doing so apparently for the next several months. The one nearest my office has 30 days of repair scheduled for it, but we're broadcasting here tonight from uh, from the building because 
doing the broadcast from home interferes with with home life. It's not fair to uh, the the people at home, specifically Emily, actually the only person at home besides me, uh, to be occupying the big space of the house and using uh, requiring everyone else to be quiet while I talk. Uh, that's just not going to happen and not appropriate. And so here we are uh, in the Brewster. Uh, putting up with the noise, and with the headphones on it, it hardly comes through, and apparently uh, the engineer assures me you're not hearing it, so so we can move ahead. Lots has gone on on campus over the past uh, week or two. Football's merging into basketball, and both sports ECU is showing promise for the future, but losing in the present, so we're not going to talk about that at all. Uh, had an interesting academic experience last Friday uh, engaging in a uh, pedagogical workshop pr- a program called Reacting to the Past that has students play role-play historical figures and then uh, uh, read primary sources about them, learn about the figures that they're, whose, whose roles they are filling and interact with each other. And, and apparently it does encourage students to learn uh, in different ways, so we we did a practice one. The, the uh, and I got to be Big Bill Haywood of the uh, Industrial Workers of the World for several hours on Friday. I already used something like this in in the Civil War course that I teach here at ECU, in which we do a, a one day role play on the the crisis of Fort Sumter and the secession winter. The reacting to the past series is supposed to take up half the semester, and I'm not sure I'm ready to commit that much time to role-playing in class. But it is an interesting technique, and it does seem to work well with students, at least in in limited doses. Uh, Other things going on here uh, on campus include the appointment of a new interim chancellor. The current uh, interim provost is now the interim chancellor, uh, Ron Mitchelson. He is a geographer, a colleague, a friend. I've worked with him when I was department chair. He was at one time department chair, then became provost. And uh, I'm sure he will do an excellent job. He and I don't necessarily see eye to eye on the importance of the role of history, but uh, I, I trust him to be honest and fair in his position. And we'll hopefully get a full-time permanent uh, chancellor installed uh, before too long, and hopefully somebody that the Board of Governors will not then proceed to drive out as they have done uh, with the last two. Here at Civil War Talk Radio, moving back to the Civil War era, we have lots of interesting things coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week, the book you heard announced during the break, Donald Miller's new book, Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy will be our topic. We'll have Professor Miller on the show. Uh, The the feedback I'm getting regarding having uh, the commercial announcements instead of the the ones provided by Voice America, having ones actually dealing with Civil War products, seem to be generally favorable. If you have something you want announced on the show that has to do with the Civil War, get in touch with me. I'll put you in touch with the folks at Voice America. They'll work out a deal. I don't know what it costs or where the money goes. Uh, Some of it comes back here. Some of it goes to support the overhead for the show. But if it's a useful service to you, then we're going to go ahead with that. Um, 
And we'll also, uh, I'll be reading uh, Professor Miller's book in the next week and talking with him next week. I certainly hope it's good, uh, but from a quick review of it, it certainly looks uh, like it will be worth your time and mine. After that, it'll be Thanksgiving here in the United States on November 20, week of November 27, so no live show that week. But we'll come back and do two more shows before the end of the fall semester. Uh, on uh, December 4th, it will be uh, uh, James Robbins Jewell, who has edited the uh, reminiscences and correspondence of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment, not one that fought at Vicksburg or Shiloh. Uh, they were on duty in the Pacific Northwest, so we'll find out what's going on in that corner of the Civil War, something we have not yet touched on, I don't think, in 15 years. And we'll finish up the fall season with Kevin M. Levin and his book, Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. We've got a full slate lined up for the spring season, uh, optimistically called spring. It starts in January, and I'll have those posted uh, for you in the not-too-distant future on www.impedimentsofwar.org, also the Impediments of War Facebook page, where Mark Gaffney keeps things uh, current. I'll send those new shows to Mark. He'll put them up, and you'll see who's going to be on. We have a lot of good shows coming up in January and February, and hope you can join us for that. And, of course, hope you can join us in the year ahead at Gettysburg College for the Civil War Institute in June, and the uh, also the tours of Civil War battlefields put on by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours in May and June, contact them and join me as we tour interesting places in Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. Well, tonight's book uh, is one called The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina by Philip Gerard. This is a book, uh, before I bring the author on, I want to let you know, uh, this is a book I really enjoyed reading. I think uh, you will too. I think listeners of Civil War Talk Radio will generally find it as interesting as I did. But I want to explain before I bring the author on why I was prepared to dislike this book uh, when I first opened it last week. And I, I want to tell you why. Uh, and, and Philip, I know you're listening too, so you'll hear this as well. If you've listened to the show any length of time, you know how much I support public history, uh, favor breaking down barriers between academic history and the general history audience. Uh, I encourage people who aren't professors of history to write about uh, the Civil War. We've had many, many of them uh, on the show over the past 15 years. Often they are people who spent years uh, researching a particular topic about which they have a passionate interest, and the results are enlightening, and uh, they bring something new to the table that no one else has done. Uh, last week's biography of Matthew Fontaine Maury is a good example. But a few weeks ago, we had on the show another author who was not a trained academic historian, wrote a book about the last year of the Civil War. And if you haven't already read Bruce Catton and Shelby Foote and James McPherson, then that book would be a fine introduction to uh, what to you would be a new topic. But most of you listening have read those classics already. So for you and for me, that particular book really had nothing new in it except the author's opinions. Uh, 
And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with well-written pop history. That's what first draws many people into reading history. What I found disconcerting uh, about that book was the author's uh, apparent impression that by adding his opinions to the book, his, his fresh takes based on two years of reading secondary sources, that this somehow elevated his book from the level of pop history into something worthwhile for readers like you and me who, or anyone else who's already read Catton or Foote, McPherson, and so on. Yes, it does have opinions, but so do I. So do you, and so does anyone else who spend a few years reading Civil War history. Most of us are happy to share those opinions with our friends at the Civil War Roundtable, but we're not under the delusion that someone shelling out 32 bucks for a hardback book that has nothing new except those opinions would think, oh, that was worth it. So when I read the introduction to tonight's book, the author says he's someone new to the Civil War field when he started writing it. My initial fear was this was going to be Another author who thought a few years of general reading makes you suddenly qualified to share your fresh takes with everyone, and and we would benefit from them in some way. Fortunately for all of us, I'm happy to say that this book is not that, not what I feared at all. I enjoyed it. I learned from it. I'm happy that we have uh, the author, Philip Gerard, here tonight, and let's let's bring him in for a few minutes before our first break. Philip, uh, are you there? I am certainly here. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Uh, I, I hope that was not too off-putting an introduction there. No, not uh, at all. I think it's actually accurate. It's worth talking about that. So I'm glad you did. And, uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, well, let, let's start with that. It, your your day job, you teach creative writing at, at UNC Wilmington, uh, not too far here from, from East Carolina University. What got you writing about the Civil War? Well, Elizabeth Hudson, who is the wonderful editor at Our State Magazine, called me and said, we have the sesquicentennial coming up. We'd like you to do you know, a narrative for us. And I said, well, I could name on the fingers of one hand five great historians that I know personally who are better equipped. And she said, no, essentially they wanted me because I was ignorant. They wanted somebody who had no preconceived notions about it. And uh, it, was, it appealed to me because I always tell my students, don't write what you know, write what you want to find out about. So your ignorance is satisfied by your curiosity, and if you do the job well, then you can bring something you know, new and fresh to the perspective. So we decided that I would cover the war as if it were happening, as if it were not a settled thing, and what I was trying to do with that was to figure out a way to recreate what I thought of as a very true and terrible suspense that the people who were fighting the war, enduring it on the home front, um, whatever we're going through, because they didn't know how it was going to turn out. You know, we have lots of information about what would happen at Gettysburg or what would happen to the South in general or how the surrenders might come about. But they didn't. You know, they were living in the present tense and the now. And I wanted to try to capture that. And then the idea was to try to create a lens out of North Carolina through which we could look pretty much at anything to do with the whole war. And North Carolina turned out for many reasons to be the perfect state to do that with. And then the third thing was... We generals were going to be in it, of course, because they were going to and fro with their armies in the middle of the war, but we're trying to figure out how to capture some of the more ordinary people, the uh, the farm wife or the guy that works on a railroad or the free black or the escaping slave or, you know, um, just the nuns who come down and try to treat the wounded, all the people who are in the war but who never show up much in the history books. That was really what the project was about, and so... Uh, you know, I, I took a deep breath and, and jumped into it and spent four years uh, doing the best I could to find out what in the world was happening out there. 
So this these pieces appeared. This this book, the last battleground, has I think it's forty three chapters, each of them just a few pages long. Uh, th- and those those chapters were originally pieces that appeared in in our state magazine. Well, they they were in some form, but they have been seriously re-reported, re-edited, rearranged. In some cases, um, things have been either cut or combined with other things. And in the meantime, of course, I had the benefit of having historians like Mark Bradley, who read the entire manuscript and was able to give me lots of advice about things that I might make more accurate or narratively more clear. And my good friend Chris Vonville, who was sort of an expert on Fort Fisher and all the fighting down around Wilmington. So I had a lot of resources to go to who could backstop me, so I didn't make any boneheaded blunders, because I have an amazing respect for professional historians. There they do the hard work that every writer builds on, you know. Whether you're writing truly historically or writing kind of in any genre, uh, it's that that's what uh, historians bring to the world, and uh, I wanted to honor that and not come out there with some kind of an arrogance that I could tell the story better. So I tried to be humble and just try to keep my eyes open and and try to find out as much as I could and and, and create that into a coherent narrative. Well, the the thing that the, the unique skill that you bring uh, as a, a creative writing professor is is an ability to write that unfortunately a lot of uh, professional historians don't necessarily have so this this book um, I was talking with someone in the English department here not long ago uh, and she was describing to me the genre of creative nonfiction which my first thought was well, that's a you know contradiction in terms and she said no, and thinking about it more, it seems this book fits that definition. So what we'll, we'll do right now is take a short break, but I want to come back and ask you about the concept of creative nonfiction and, and oh, sure. how, you know, uh, uh, just, just what that exactly is. So we'll do that. We'll take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back. We're talking tonight with Philip Gerard. He's the author of The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Simon and Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller. An epic you need to add to your Civil War library. Vicksburg recounts the crucial campaign that changed everything. Vicksburg analyzes General Grant's successes and failures at Vicksburg while he battled controversies and personal demons. Not just a military campaign fought across swamps, backwoods, and bluffs, Vicksburg also forced Grant into the role of liberator as he managed the slave revolts that toppled the South's economy while adding new soldiers and workers to the Union. Vicksburg is available now wherever you buy books. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Philip Gerard, author of The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina. It's a collection of uh, short chapters, 43 in all, that talk about different aspects of North Carolina's participation in the Civil War, but written in uh, the present tense, written uh, as though things are unfolding uh, as, as we read them. And, uh, Philip, we, we ended the first segment with a question about creative nonfiction. Uh, this, this is different from, you know, what you've written here is different from academic history, or even a, a typical pop history. Uh, how, does it, how does it fit that genre? Talk, talk to us about that. Sure, that's, that's a great question. The first thing is that creative doesn't mean you make things up. Creative still means you're trying to be as absolutely accurate as you can be. But what you're also trying to do, and what I tried to do in each of the original pieces that became each of the chapters, was to create an arc of story. Uh, you know, I was talking about the suspense people endured. Um, the war didn't just happen. People made the war happen, and they made decisions during the war about how and if they would fight it, about whether they'd run away from it, all sorts of things. And every arc of story is based on a decision. So I tried for every chapter to show you somebody's fate as they're going through this cataclysm, what they did, what they didn't do, how it turned out. And to use storytelling techniques, rather than give you a list of events or a chronology of events, however important or interesting, what I was trying to do is to create a sense of a story with everything you get in a story, scene and character, dialogue that's taken from their letters or from you know, things that were written about them in the newspapers. Um, all the things that go into a story, a scene in which there's action, in which there's something at stake, and finally an outcome that matters to the reader. And in that way, kind of capture the drama that they were living through in a way that feels a little more intense and gripping than, you know, the mere recitation of the facts. And also, I think, to try to think through the way these things are normally written about and try to come up with language that was original, that could capture the, the kind of things they were doing without it just being the sort of hackneyed phrase that you always hear, um, you know, corpses stacked by cordwood or what have you, to try to get beyond language like that and to find a fresher way to simply talk about the way uh, people were living through that period. I mean, that's a real challenge because so much has been written about the Civil War. Uh, I mentioned Bruce Catton during the introduction, and every time I find myself reading, rereading something of his, uh, I think this style is so different 
from what other people do, and no one else could really get away with it. Uh, but after half a dozen paragraphs, I'm 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 used to it, and I'm I'm into it, and it I and and it's great, and I can can read read it all day. But it's not something I would train a student to do, uh, or I wouldn't enjoy reading an imitator doing it. So the challenge of finding a unique voice, as he had, uh, and as you present here, it seems to me really an extraordinary one. It is, and one great thing that helps is to be able to find the words of the people who are actually going through the events described. So from their diaries, um, <clears throat> from you know from Julius Leinbach's diary, of the uh, regimental band of the 26th North Carolina. He's a Moravian bandmaster. You know, they go into the army basically so they don't have to kill anybody. But he goes through the entire war basically in, in that. But kept a diary the entire time. And his words are quite eloquent as are the words of the people who penned letters uh, that, that you can really figure out what was on their mind. And that can kind of give a texture to the narrative that helps you become more original by having to live up to what they're writing. You use a lot of uh, manuscript sources, a lot of letters and diaries, and you quote from them and, and clearly rely on them. Uh, you don't use the typical scholarly apparatus, though. There are no footnotes or endnotes. So there, that's a little bit disconcerting to the reader, if, if they're, depending how what they're looking for, I guess. Uh, because... I'd, I guess after a few chapters, you built a level of trust. I feel, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. When he cites his diary, I can look in the bibliography. He's, he's found the diary. Uh, but I don't know when your uh, – if I want to teach something in class, I say, I want to read more from that source. There's no footnote to that source. Did, did you ever consider adding well, that kind of apparatus? Uh, we talked about it. It was the publisher's decision to market it as a trade book, which means that mm-hmm. they don't usually do the scholarly apparatus. And they also uh, wanted me to write kind of an epilogue that would kind of bring the book in for a landing. And mm-hmm. uh, that and the, the earlier um, kind of introductory pages sort of are meant to give a context for how I found out what I found out and how I'm presenting it and why I'm doing it this way. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a reasonable argument to have... Um, when I did the original pieces for the magazine, you know, I was not footnoting because you don't generally footnote in, in magazine right. work. Um, so I had the sources, but I wasn't you know, doing, doing careful footnotes that way. Uh, so, I mean, it's a reasonable thing to expect, I guess, uh, for certain kinds of books. The decision was made that this was not going to be an academic text. This was meant in a way, I guess you'd call it a gateway book. It's not, you know, there are people like you that probably found very few surprises in the book. Um, but I think what my my hope always when I'm writing about history is to awaken an interest to get people to say, "Wow, that's something I'd never even thought of. I didn't know the Cherokees fought you know, for the Confederacy, or I didn't know there was an outfit called the Heroes of America, you know, headquartered right down from the State House, or you know, I didn't know there were nuns on the battlefield." And to be able to introduce them to that in a way that piques curiosity and makes them go and find you know, deeper sources, take a deeper dive into. I, I think that's an excellent characterization, a, a gateway book, and with these little, very digestible chapter length, short chapter bits, uh, I, I found myself, you know, reading one, saying, "Okay, I yeah, I knew there were Cherokees in the war, but I didn't know much about them, and I'm not ready to sit down and read a monograph about it because there's too much else to read." 
But here you've given me half a dozen pages of really interesting material supported by primary sources from which I can take a vignette and maybe add that to a lecture that I'm going to give. Uh, or maybe that will you know, cause me to read an article. Uh, and and that's, so that's, that's a great example, by the way, of I, I was trying to tell that I think that the subtitle of Love Story, because William Holland Thomas, who is the white chief of the Cherokee, he really has two loves. One of them is the Cherokee people, and then the other is the woman he falls in love with. And so I can tell the story of of that very, very bizarre chapter, in a way, in American history through a love story of a very, very intensely passionate individual. Um, and, and, you know, your your comments are well taken. And the people have reacted to the book in different ways, and the reactions I love the best are the ones that begin, you know, I don't really like the Civil War much or I'm not interested in it, but I picked up your book and... You know, that's the reader that I love to grab because they're not going to read, you know, they're not going to pick up the typical Civil War tome and the scholarly treatise and the, maybe not even Bruce Catton, but they, they saw this on a shelf, it looked appealing, they picked it up and they got hooked on it, and then that might lead them into a deeper appreciation of history. And, and what I guess what I'll add from, from the other angle, and most of the people listening to us right now who are interested in the Civil War, they wouldn't be listening to this podcast if they weren't, uh, they will also find a lot of interest in this book. I mean, you know, the Shelton Laurel Massacre, I'd heard of it, I'd read Phil Paladin's book about it, um, mm-hmm. but it this reminded me that, oh yeah, I know about this, uh, I remember this, but again, if I needed... Uh, if, if I needed some details for uh, uh, for a lecture, for a talk I was going to give, uh, rather than reread someone else's whole book, here is a a, a brief synopsis, but well told and, and colorful and, and and has a story arc. Let me ask about the, the story arc question. The book as a whole, uh, how did you structure that? It, it doesn't come across as 43 random stories. Uh, you know, the idea in editing them toward a book uh, was that it should tell a coherent story, and it can't be purely chronological just simply because some of the stories I wanted to follow out to their end, and their end may be past the beginning of a story that follows it. But I tried, you know, not to begin with the surrender. I tried to begin with, you know, secession and try to march through in, in a somewhat logical way. And there are things, uh, there are characters and places who sort of appear differently throughout. Um, when I did the original series, part of the uh, <laughs> the challenge was I had very little notice to begin it. And mm-hmm. so rather than taking a year or two to research everything, order it, and, and dive into that, I sort of had, you know, would put, put out one while I was researching the next one. And the happy accident was that I would be hearing from people who would say, hey, um, I saw that piece in the, in the magazine and my great-great-grand-uncle left behind a trove of letters. You know, do you want to see those? And so I got what is really, as you know, I'm sure as a researching historian, the hardest thing to find out about are the ordinary people. The generals all leave behind their memoirs, the statesmen all leave behind their memoirs and their papers, but the ordinary farm wife in the Piedmont struggling to get in the crop while her husband is up at Petersburg. You know, she writes a letter to Governor Vance, and Zebulon Vance writes back, and because he's the governor, her letter is now preserved. But there are many other people who wrote back and forth in the armies, you know, to the home front in the armies, and... Uh, their stuff is in a shoebox somewhere. You know, some descendant has it. And so wherever I could ferret that stuff out, I would, you know, both read it, and if I could use it, use it, but also kind of direct them towards someone, whether at the Wilson Library or Mike Hill at the State Archives, who could 
take that primary document and find a home for it where other you know, historians and researchers could, could get at it. Well, that, that's very much a question I wanted to ask about the, the research method, but you also anticipated a question I was going to ask about deadlines. Uh, I know when I'm preparing for this podcast, I will be, uh, you know, I'll read a book e- each week, and, and some weeks I'll get to the day and I haven't finished the book and I'm sort of turning the pages, got to get through this. And other ones, I'll think, I really wish I had two more weeks to reread this carefully, really go through it, but there's no time. I've got to start next week's book. I can't. Uh, I can't take your book and savor it tomorrow because I'll be reading the book for next Wednesday. Uh, yeah. Did you ever experience that where you finished a piece and thought, oh, I really want to do that over again, or I really want to do more of that? Yeah, who was the writer who said, I love deadlines, I love the sound they make when they go whooshing by? There was certainly that anxiety, and uh, I was working with some really good editors throughout the process, and because we were working always three months ahead of publication, there often was a little bit of time to go back and say, oh, by the way, I found out something else that's really cool that I'd like to amend the story with. But the other thing was because I was thinking about it the whole time through as a book and then had another, basically another year and a half to work on it after the series closed um, and had other you know, readers from UNC Press and um, people to read it over my shoulder, I had a chance for a do-over. So I could go back in and say, what did I leave out? What did I get wrong? What do I want to make a little more accurate? What do I want to make a little more clear? And so that, that's a tremendous gift that most writers never get. And I was really happy to have that. So there are so many interesting individual chapters, and, and I wanted to ask you about some of those. As we approach the next break, uh, one thing that struck me was your chapters about music. Uh, you mentioned already the Moravian band members, and you talked about other forms of music. Uh, do you play music? Oh, I do. In fact, I'll be down in Augusta doing a whole program of Civil War music on Monday night. Yeah. It, it showed in the writing. I, I, I was. I thought about that. Uh, it, it sounded like somebody who, who was writing from a musician's viewpoint. Uh, well, so I noticed what, you were you were, you were playing uh, Ashkan Farewell, Shokin Farewell, the, the, the great right. Civil War song that was in the Ken Burns documentary. I met a guy in Ireland who learned that song from Jay Unger <laughs> when ah. he stayed with him. Yeah. So so it, it, yeah. For, for any listeners who don't know, Jay Unger wrote that piece uh, right. that, that uh, you know that Ken Burns used as a theme, and so many people assume it was a Civil War era piece, but it, it's uh, it, it's Jay Unger's composition. Uh, sure, but it, it's a wonderful he, piece. That's that not me playing it. I can assure you. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, he he sort of perfectly mimicked the spirit of the time and the style of the time for a certain kind of fiddler. So I think that. It really feels one of those. It's almost like a sepia tone song when you hear it. It just feels it, like it's coming to you from another age. It does. It does. He really, really captured the the idiom beautifully there. So, uh, but, but when you talked about you know clawhammer banjo styles and and fiddle playing and and so on, I thought this uh, there were, there seemed to be an enthusiasm for the music there that uh, that, that uh, just came through in the writing. Well, one of the things that you rarely hear about in, in, in many history books, but certainly in histories about the Civil War, is the fact that there was music everywhere. I mean, you find songs that have 15 verses and go on for 15 or 20 minutes because they didn't care about time. The whole point was to spend time singing for fellowship and morale and to pass the time and get through a long night and whatever. And so everybody sang. 
Soldiers sang in camp, they sang on the march. Bands played going into battle. Reveille was not just a bugle, it was an entire ensemble that began with drums and included uh, other instruments. Um, and at, at campfires at night, they sang sentimental ballads or religious songs. Uh, there was an entire different uh, kind of singing and playing in the black regiments. That was They were so good at it that many times they were called upon to perform for their white counterpart troops because they loved the singing so much. So there's this whole soundtrack that um, makes history come alive for me in a way that it doesn't when it feels like a silent world on a page, if that makes sense. No, it, it really, thinking that there's uh, the line you quote from uh, from a contemporary source of one of the soldiers who was engaged in the killing of the at the Shelton Laurel Massacre says, you know, boys, pat Juba for me now, you know, make that music by slapping mm. body parts so I can dance on these bodies as they go to hell. Uh, just what an awful uh, and, and, and vivid uh, image. Uh, but yeah, there again, the, music. That's the dark side for sure. That's, that's absolutely, and and I, love, uh, I love Ulysses Grant. He has a famous quote where he, somebody asked him about music and he says, well, I know two songs. One of them is Yankee Doodle and the other one isn't. <laughs> So not every soldier was musical. Um, no, he was unmusical. But <laughs> let me ask you a question to ponder over as we go to the next break. Uh, of the forty-three chapters, uh, which one is your favorite? That's the impossible question about one's children. Sure. Uh, but we'll take another break now. You can think about that, uh, and we'll come back in a moment. Tonight we're talking with Philip Gerard author of The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, Publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller. An epic you need to add to your Civil War library. Vicksburg recounts the crucial campaign that changed everything. Vicksburg analyzes General Grant's successes and failures at Vicksburg while he battled controversies and personal demons. Not just a military campaign fought across swamps, backwoods, and bluffs, Vicksburg also forced Grant into the role of liberator as he managed the slave revolts that toppled the South's economy while adding new soldiers and workers to the Union. Vicksburg is available now wherever you buy books. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O. 
K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Philip Gerard, author of The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina. It is not just about the... Uh, the, the last battles at Bentonville, uh, Fort Fisher, but about the entire Civil War in North Carolina in a series of uh, 43 separate vignettes, uh, mini chapters that talk about different episodes in the war, originally appearing in Our State magazine, a, a magazine about North Carolina. Uh, so, uh, Philip, out, out of all those, are there any that, that really stick out to you as, as particular favorites? Oh, there are several. One of them is the one called Dear My Beloved, and it tells the story of Francis Marion Petit, who is 36 years old um, when he's conscripted into the... He comes from McDowell County. He's a coffin maker and a, and a farmer and carpenter, and he's conscripted into the Army, and he leaves behind his wife, Martha, and there are nine children, and she's pregnant with their tenth. And he is a distinctly uh, unenthusiastic soldier. In fact, um, at one point, he deserts, he's captured, he's punished, and he spends time in uh, what amounts to the brig, the prison in in Richmond. Uh, He he nearly dies on a number of occasions. He winds up the war despairing of ever getting home again. He's he's trapped in the siege of Petersburg. He's starving to death. And the letters that they exchange between them are just so full of a real sweet love and a candidness. A lot of people who wrote back and forth, uh, especially the soldiers writing from the front, were prone to hide their misfortune. They didn't want people back home to worry. But he is absolutely candid with her about everything that's going through his mind and how he's suffering and what have you. And she is absolutely candid with him about his need to come back from the war safely. And I'm not going to tell you the ending, but it is this is a remarkably romantic ending, in my view. And it was a Despite all their suffering, their their quiet endurance, their absolute love for one another, and just the way they endured and came through, uh, it, I find that sort of inspiring. Uh, a guy who didn't really want the war, like many people, the war just broke over him like a gigantic natural disaster, and he got caught up in it, and so did she. Uh, and and two people just trying to find their way through the war with their family just, just really strikes a chord at me every time I think about it. Well, it, it also relates to uh, another thing about this book that I, I liked, uh, and another reason I was prepared not to like it initially was uh, I'm, I'm not a North Car- Carolinian. I wasn't born here. I work here. The state pays me. Uh, I'm happy to have raised children here, but it's not my home state. Um, and so when, when a book is based on something in the state magazine, uh, my first thought is, you know, am I going to like this, or is the listener in Iowa going to like this, or in California? But the, the story of, of the Potits is a human story that you don't have sure. to care about the state to care about those people. Well, that was sort of the point. The idea was to, to use to write about the entire war, use the lens being North Carolina, and North Carolinians were so crucial in every part of the war. Even after Lincoln was assassinated, it was a North Carolinian. Andrew Johnson, who becomes the president, who kind of ruins Reconstruction. And all throughout the war, there are significant things going on in North Carolina. The Great Surrender happens here. Lots of things that people aren't aware of happen here. But also, those people are major players at some of the big 
things that happen in the world, like the, like Gettysburg, for example. You know, like Sherman's final march, um, mm-hmm. the, the last stand of the army. Um, so it, it turned out to be a much better state than if I'd have chosen, you know, South Carolina or Georgia or anywhere else. It was a home, uh, both a home ground, you know, a home front and a battleground. It was a place where in the last months of the war, so many things kind of collapsed on North Carolina. The, the, uh, uh, the Richmond government was busy fleeing away from Richmond, and they came and stopped in North Carolina for a while, and the surrender was negotiated here. And So it just turned out to be a happy thing that, that I happened to live here, and this, this was the magazine that commissioned it. But if I'd have been living anywhere else, I might still have chosen the state as a state to tell the story of the war through. It, it really, I mean, you, you do present a, a very impressive breadth of experiences that, that do make it interesting uh, not to someone who's simply a booster, but uh, but because of all these different dimensions. But while we're talking about North Carolina, I want to ask you about the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction History Center. Uh, oh, yeah. You mentioned that uh, in in your book, uh, in the, the afterward the introduction, and uh, I've been on the board of advisors from that since the beginning with uh, David Winslow and others. Sure. I'm, and uh, I've talked, listeners, you know, I've mentioned it to you before, uh, a project going on here in North Carolina to create a history center that would not just be another Civil War museum, but would tell the story, uh, Philip, much as you've tried to tell it, to to be inclusive and describe the experiences of of many, many different North Carolinians, uh, you know, from the, the top ranks of the army, the soldiers, the home front, the enslaved, the free immigrant, native-born, and so on. Uh, the, do you have any thoughts on, on how the, the center is doing? There, there's some pushback well, in Fayetteville recently. We're, uh, we, we've had good meetings with uh, you know, the people uh, representing the government of Fayetteville and uh, state. We've been working very closely with uh, the superintendent of public instruction, the state board of education, the legislature, and, of course, everybody's waiting on the budget. That's we're we're in that budget. We'll, it'll be part of um, the Division of Cultural Affairs. Um, I, I think it's a hugely important enterprise, and I think it's really hugely important now because one of the things I learned early on in doing the project was that the Civil War is a very complicated thing, and all those simple narratives that we learned in fifth grade during the one little union in the Civil War turn out not to really be what, what it was about and how it started and what it involved, and you really have to go back and do a deep dive into the whole culture of slavery, and you've got to talk about what people's motives were, both the government's motive for seceding and the individual person's motive for either signing up or not signing up on one side or the other. And it's, it, it makes it more, not less interesting to do that, but it also means you've got to take a hard look at the things that maybe are not always pleasant stories to look at. So... As you were doing this research for these pieces and writing them both for the magazine and later for the book, what was the most surprising thing that, that really contradicted what you thought you knew about the war that you came across? Oh, the, mo- the most surprising thing of all was that, you know, I've always been taught in the various you know, history courses I had in high school or grade school that, you know, the, the enslaved black people in the South were just simply kind of waiting around uh, for the guys in the blue suits to come down and rescue them. And really what I found was a very active culture of subversion, if you want to call it, both in the plantations and in the western part of the state, especially when uh, after the Confederacy was being um, 
Breton on the eastern side where slaves were being taken wholesale out into the western counties. And those slaves began organizing in ways to get escaped Union soldiers over the mountains to Tennessee or to get other slaves a chance to escape. And they were self-liberating all along the line of Sherman's march. Uh, some of them signed up and fought here in Wilmington, where I am at Battle of Fort Fisher and the Battle of Forks Road, where there's soon to be a really beautiful piece of art commemorating that. Um, and people like Abraham Galloway you know, came down. He had escaped slavery, came back as a spy and a broker who actually helped them to form regiments of black soldiers. So there was a tremendously active role that the African-American community played, both enslaved and free, that I think often just sort of gets swept away in the sort of Lee Grant simplification of the blue guys fighting the gray guys. So, and that's, uh, yeah, there are many colorful uh, stories within that, uh, as you tell here. What about... uh, Individual characters you mentioned. You mentioned some who really moved you. Was there anybody that you came away really not liking? Oh well, you know General Pickett, uh, uh, who by the end of the war was probably both alcoholic and, if not insane, at least had periods when he was not right in the head. But hanging twenty-two captive Union soldiers in uh, in Kinston, which constituted a war crime according to Edwin Stanton, Secretary of War. And then he has to leave America in disguise to Canada to hide out until his friend Grant makes it possible for him to come back after the war. But he he really turns out to be a sort of despicable character in my mind. It's very hard. It's very hard to find. And even in his own army, there's the famous um, whether it's a true story or not, I don't know. But supposedly, at some point, uh, he encountered General Lee after the war in Richmond, and General Lee turned and snubbed him and wouldn't even recognize him on the street. I did. There, there's, uh, and again, I, I'm trying to remember the source where I saw it, that, that where Lee actually sees Pickett after Five Forks on the way to Appomattox. Says, is that man still with the Army? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he has no use for, for Pickett, that, that's for sure. Uh, it was just interesting, contrasting, this a few weeks ago on the show, uh, Hampton Newsom was on, who, who has a, a wonderful new book on the operations in eastern North Carolina uh, in in May of 1864, May and June uh, of 1864. Mm-hmm. So he looks at just one part of the state and one part of the war in much more detail. But he talks about, of course, the the hangings. He talks about the, uh, the ironclad, the Albemarle built in a cornfield that you talk about. And it was interesting to, to, to contrast the two approaches where he uh, uses a traditional scholarly approach and focuses on, on a specific uh, section of the war, and I thought it was a, a wonderful book and really enjoyed it. And your book touches on many of those same stories where it's like, as I'm reading them and going, oh yeah, I, and if I want to know more, I'll read Hampton's book again. Uh, but in well, the, the time it took to read your book, I read not just those stories that I already knew, but also you know, came across things I didn't know anything about and things I knew a little bit about, uh, the breadth of, of coverage is is what made this for me very appealing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because I think one virtue of doing this kind of a project is to get all those facets between one set of covers and to say, you mean the war was this and that and the other thing and this other thing and those other ten things too. I mean, wow. Because I, you know, I tend when I write other books and when I read other books, I tend to find them very focused on a a particular subject matter, usually limited in time or place or by the characters. And so I thought one original thing about this might be just that it has them all together so you can say what a, what a kind of complicated, crazy, marvelous 
terrifying thing this whole Civil War was. And and, and it certainly was that. Um, do you plan to do any more Civil War writing? I'm not sure at this point. There are a couple of things I uncovered that I'm sort of interested in, uh, in going toward, but it'll, I've got some other projects in line ahead of that, so it may be put on hold. But it certainly awakened an interest in the war, which you know I, I had not. My, I grew up in Delaware. In fact, I was born just north of the Mason-Dixon line, if you continue it through northern Delaware, which, of course, it doesn't technically go, but, and then grew up just south of it. But um, my war was the revolution. You know, we had uh, Valley Forge nearby. We would go see the Battle of Brandywine that kind of thing. So this was a, a whole kind of brand new thing to open up for me. Well, you, you talk about the places you visited uh, and how many there are in North Carolina that even a lot of folks who, who have been to Virginia, they'll go to Manassas and, and Chancellorsville and uh, they'll go up to Gettysburg and Antietam and Maryland, Pennsylvania. Uh, but the sites in North Carolina are, are surprisingly rich. Uh, Bentonville, obviously, but uh, like Wise Forks is not uh, barely even marked, really. Uh, Civil War Trails right. has done a good job putting things up. But stuff happened there that, uh, that is, is interesting to learn about. Well, if you, I always believe if you're going to tell the story of what happened in a place, if you can at all do it, go to that place. And walk around in it and try to imagine yourself into the shoes of whoever was there doing what they do. And uh, walking the ground is an amazingly wonderful research tool because it, you know, you'll feel the ground in your legs. You'll feel if you're going uphill or downhill. You'll see where sight lines disappear and trees get in your way. And you'll see where there's a creek you didn't think was there and now you can't cross easily. And, and it is a much better way of understanding how that stuff unfolded than just looking at a map of the battlefield, which always sort of looks like a chess game. It's all very neat, and the topography really isn't much marked usually. Um, and I find it tremendously helpful to get out there. And, and the same goes for the built environment, for going inside of uh, forts or prisons or whatever's left of them, uh, walking through the cemeteries where the, the dead were buried. You know, all those things to me are quite resonant with imagination well, and memory. It, they absolutely are. And, and this book is, is resonant with imagination and memory as well. Uh, it, I would like to talk about it for another hour, but unfortunately we are out of time. So uh, I will just say, listeners, you will—you uh, don't have to be from North Carolina or even live here to thoroughly enjoy The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, uh, written by Philip Gerard, who's been our guest tonight. Philip, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.